Hey everyone, thank you for checking out supplemental lecture number four, about chapter four. It's hard to believe we're already four weeks into the semester, and this week we talk about intra and interpersonal communication. Our in-class lecture will focus mostly on intrapersonal communication, as well as how intrapersonal communication informs interpersonal needs, like that of affection or inclusion. Today we're going to talk about why we get to know other people and how we get to know other people. This is obviously very important for an organizational context as within any organization you're constantly learning things about people that are already in the organization or meeting new people that are new to the organization. Maybe it's you that is the new person to the organization. All right, in any case, a quick reminder for class, Sunday, February 11th, reflection essay number one and topic check number three are both due via D2L submission. The topic check can be submitted via the quizzes tab. And then reflection essay number one, the prompt is available both under assignments and under this week's content tab. But basically, you're just picking a product that came out with a lot of fanfare that didn't meet your expectations, and you're addressing the prompt regarding that particular product. Next Tuesday, which is uh, February 13th, we'll have quiz number two in class. It'll be over chapters three and four, and that's something where the study guide will be posted this week or the same week as this lecture is getting posted. And then we'll also discuss international and intercultural business communication during that class period as well. So let's get into the supplemental lecture content here. And we begin by talking about social penetration theory. Now, one of the things that we'll talk about during class, if you're watching this before class or listening to this before class, is the extra credit potential if you're able to recognize musicians, band members. We're not doing that for this lecture, but I do want you to know, especially for those that are listening to the podcast version of this, uh, there is a picture of Cat Stevens, also known as Yusef Islam, on the screen right now as we talk about social penetration theory. And the reason I want to point this out is because there will be a question about this on the topic check. This is just to make sure that people are checking out the supplemental lecture. So the answer to the question on the topic check straight up is Cat Stevens. Now, social penetration theory, we move basically from shallow communication to deeper communication as a relationship develops. This makes sense, right? We don't go right up to someone and ask them what their deepest fear is or what their life goal is. Typically, we start with small talk, that phatic communication that we kind of discussed in last week's lecture about the parts of conversation. And so social penetration theory is also called the onion theory because of this. It says that basically we have to peel away layers of the onion before we can get to the center of someone else. And it's true that you can cut through an onion, but what happens when you cut through an onion? Well, it makes you cry very often. And I'm not saying that if you ask deep penetrating questions of other people, it'll make you cry. But I'm just saying typically that interaction is unpleasant. We don't go up to someone the first time we meet them 
under typical circumstances and ask them what their deepest fears are or uh, how they feel about certain you know, maybe sensitive topics there. Typically, we start out with very basic topics. Maybe it's what's your favorite band or where did you, uh, where did you grow up or are you in school? These very basic, basic questions here. As we get to know someone, we self-disclose and we also expect them to self-disclose as well. This assists in that kind of penetration to the middle layers of the onion and eventually to the center of the onion. But for a relationship to develop, each party has to self-disclose. If the questions are very one-sided and you have one person asking all of the questions, that other person is not going to know much about you if you're not self-disclosing. And also the relationship might break down over time. Additionally, if we choose not to self-disclose in a relationship, what does that mean? Well, basically it means that we don't have an interest in getting to know the other person. If you ask someone what their favorite beverage is and they just answer coffee and they don't explain it all, and then you ask a follow-up question, why do you like coffee so much? And the other person says, the taste, and that's it. Then it's a pretty clear signal that either they don't want to talk to us or they don't want to get to know us because that self-disclosure isn't happening. So self-disclosure is key. Mutual self-disclosure is key. And self-disclosure, as we'll talk about later on, can be awkward at times, but it's absolutely necessary in order to get to know someone at a deeper level. Now, the other thing I point out too is that this can go beyond verbal or textual communication. If my body language is open towards you, if I'm not closed off, if I don't have my arms crossed, if I'm not facing away from you, that generally means I'm engaged in conversation and I do want to get to know a little bit about you or I'm interested in your answer to the questions I'm asking. But if I ask you a question and then turn my back or if I just kind of half listen or I pull out my phone and start looking at my phone as you're talking to me about something of your interest, then that shows that I am personally not interested in getting to know you or at least not as interested as I am with whatever else is going on in life, whether it be some signal from the phone or something that's going on across the room. So we can also give visual and other signals of interest as well. We give signals of interest too in terms of how we talk. If we talk in warmer terms, if we're not as terse, if we're a little more verbose, if we use more words as we're talking to someone, that's usually a signal of interest. And so it can be misconstrued sometimes. People like me, I talk a lot all the time. It doesn't necessarily mean I wanna to get to know everyone a little bit more deeply, although generally speaking, I do. Uh, sometimes that can be misconstrued. For other people, maybe they just don't like to talk or they answer questions in a terse fashion or with very few words. And that can be misconstrued too, is that that person doesn't want to engage in conversation, doesn't want to engage in the self-disclosure process. And that might not be entirely correct either. So just something to keep in mind is this varies based on our individual preferences. So if you're watching this lecture, I've got a graphic up on the screen, but basically I'm going to try to describe to you what we've got going on here and what I want you to take away from this. So we already said relationships usually start at the outer layer of the onion and there's kind of like a little onion type circle there on the screen. When you start out with slight disclosure, that's usually a mechanism to get to increasing disclosure and then high disclosure. Now the graphic on the screen uses this in the context of a romantic relationship, but it doesn't always have to be in terms of a romantic relationship. It can be in terms of a friendship, uh, a good coworker partnership or a colleagueship, etc. 
basically saying that when we get to know someone better and in deeper terms, we're typically a little bit more friendly with them. We get to know them and we're more comfortable around them. The breadth of what you're talking about, the breadth of the onion has to do with all of the different topics you could possibly discuss. So if you think about an onion cut in half, you have the entire outside of the onion, maybe uh, sports fandom takes up a small slice of that onion, and then their political allegiances or religious preferences, uh, music preferences, etc., goes all the way around the onion. And then the depth is how deep you get into that particular category. So if we were to use, let's just say for sake of argument, uh, preferences, life preferences as part of the breadth, again, you cut deeper and deeper and deeper into that and you figure out what someone wants, what someone likes, what someone dislikes. And at the very center of the onion, you begin to find out not just what they like, what they dislike in terms of personal preferences, but moreover why they like or dislike these things. It could be that someone dislikes going for jogs because they did so as a kid and got really hurt, really badly hurt. And so that trauma kind of stayed with them and that's why they no longer like to run. So that has opened up basically the center of the onion. So if I ask you in the future about the breadth versus the depth of the onion, that's what we're talking about. Depth, we're getting down to the very core or it's how deep you're getting into the onion. Breadth is that work around the onion. How much and how many different areas, how relationally flexible can you be with the person that you're meeting or talking to or self-disclosing with? Now, the key behind social penetration theory is self-disclosure. And self-disclosure is defined as information's, information, thoughts, or feelings. We tell ourselves, we tell others, pardon me, about ourselves that they would not otherwise know. So there are certain physical characteristics that we can tell just by looking at someone. For example, you all have seen me in the classroom, and I would say one of my personal characteristics is that I tend to be taller than average, tend to be. I am taller than average. So that's something that I don't have to self-disclose. If you walked up to me and you were like, Trent, tell me a little about yourself, and I just said, I'm tall and I've got longer hair, someone would look at you and be like, yeah, yeah, that's, I can tell that, but tell me something else about you, right? So that self-disclosure is something that others wouldn't already know. And this is where we get into kind of not only pulling out the surface level things, but also some of those center of the onion things. We talked about it during last week's class period about psychographic characteristics. These are things that are not easily discernible from the outside. So these are things that transcend our age and so forth. So beliefs, values, these are types of things that we self-disclose about. And those typically happen towards the center or middle of the onion. And then we have this other thing called the dyadic effect. And this is the other aspect that makes social penetration theory work. So we have to have self-disclosure to really craft a friendship, a colleagueship, a close relationship, whatever that might be and in whatever context. But we also have to have the dyadic effect playing a part. And what this basically means is there's this expectation of reciprocal communication in an interaction. If I tell you a lot of different things about myself that you wouldn't otherwise know, so if I'm self-disclosing, I'm bringing a lot to the table, and you don't tell me anything about yourself, then I'm going to take that as disinterest. You know, it's going to be taking, seeing that as a sign that you don't want to get to know me any further, maybe that I'm over-talking, 
oversharing, etc. And so I'm going to clam up. I'm not going to talk quite as much as I would have otherwise if that self-disclosure were perfectly mutual. So this dyadic effect is in place. Now, when someone self-discloses to us, unless we have a reason not to self-disclose something, typically through reciprocity, we try to self-disclose a little bit to them. Again, unless we're intentionally trying to withhold or maybe we're just not picking up on clues that there's self-disclosure going on. But ultimately, at some point, we're going to start to push back on that. We're going to get questions that get asked that are a little too personal. And so we have to find ways to push back on that. And that's where this kind of like feeling out around the onion process works is if you try to cut in too deeply, that person might push back a little bit. You got to withdraw that knife a little bit and start asking more questions around the perimeter of the onion there. If there is no dyadic effect going on, if there's no reciprocity, then intimacy and communication, at least in this relationship, isn't likely to be achieved. So if you have one person self-disclosing, the other person not self-disclosing anything, you're not really going to get that intimacy in communication. And this is where we see a lot of friendships, and a lot of romantic relationships suffer. But this is the case in organizations too. For example, when supervisors don't disclose a lot about themselves, whether it's their personal life, whether it's their personality, anything like that, but they expect their employees to self-disclose, there's going to be some suspicion there in that relationship. That relationship could be frayed over time. So in order for positive relationships and positive working relationships to be crafted in an organizational context, there's got to be some shared self-disclosure. Now, you might argue that some self-disclosure doesn't belong in an organization, and I would tell you, you're absolutely right. We all hear stories about people that overshare, either in a friendship context or a workplace context. So there is oversharing that we have to concern ourselves with, but generally speaking, we at least have to have some level of self-disclosure in order for that working relationship to develop. Now, all that being said, Self-disclosure is awkward. It's awkward enough sometimes to make you yell, make you want to scream. And so interpersonal relationships, as a result, take time to develop. We're not all oversharers. Are there certain oversharers out there? Are certain people saying, hey, I'm an open book. You can ask me anything. Absolutely there are. But generally speaking, we're hesitant to share things about ourselves and self-disclose, especially when these other people wouldn't otherwise know these facts about us. So this all makes it a very awkward, intricate dance that takes time to develop. So why do we form these relationships if the process is so difficult, especially in a business context? Why do we need to know things about our coworkers? Why do we need to know things about other people in our organization or our supervisors? Well, here is uh, the one big thing that I want you to take away from this lecture is that we do this, we self-disclose in order to reduce our uncertainty about others. Because even though self-disclosure can be awkward for us, uncertainty causes way more cognitive dissonance and turns out to be way more awkward for most people than self-disclosure is. And so there's this uncertainty theory, which says that we attempt to get to know others as a mechanism to reduce our own uncertainty. The more we know about others, the better we can predict their behavior and know how they'll behave towards us. So I mentioned the supervisor 
relationship that someone might have and why it's important for that supervisor to self-disclose a little bit. Well, if the supervisor doesn't self-disclose, then you really don't know how they'll react to bad news or good news or indifferent news. You really don't know how they'll behave on a day-to-day -day basis in the workplace. But the more they self-disclose, and sometimes this might be self-disclosure through their behavior as well, you know what to predict. So if you have a boss that has a very short fuse, you know that if you tell them negative news, you're probably going to have to sugarcoat it a little bit to keep that fuse from going off. So that's a very basic example of why we do this. But we do this outside of organizations and outside of workplaces too. This is why we try to get to know people. This is why I ask you little questions on the attendance sheet about yourself, your favorite band or your favorite beverage, etc. Is because if I get to know you, that reduces my uncertainty about you as a student in my class. And likewise, I self-disclose for the same reason, so that you can be a little bit more certain about what you can expect out of my class. So to build off of uncertainty theory, there's this predicted outcome value theory that basically states that we try to maximize our possible benefits from relationships. Now, this might sound, you know, maybe a little misanthropic, right? It says that we're all out to basically maximize the benefits that we get from friendships and relationships. But if you think about it, this is absolutely true. If you have that friend that's a constant drain on you and you don't see a lot of benefit from it, maybe it's just a warm, fuzzy feeling inside. If you don't get that, if you don't get good information from them, uh, if you there's no mutual help, if there's no mutual benefit there, you're probably not going to be friends with that person for very long. So we try to make friendships with those that benefit us most. And that's not altogether always selfish. Again, sometimes that's just benefiting us in ways that we can't necessarily quantify. It's not like they're giving us money or anything like that. But in an organizational context, it absolutely could be about money. We may craft relationships. This is a, basically all networking is, right? We basically craft relationships so that we can see a possible benefit from it. Usually this comes in the form of a monetary benefit or a benefit in terms of job opportunity. So again, self-disclosure, which also happens during the networking process, it helps to reduce our uncertainty and it helps to tell us which relationships that we have could actually be valuable to us based on our time and which relationships that we have might not be that valuable to us over a long period of time. So want to do a quick rundown of how self-disclosure works because we've talked about interpersonal communication through the lens of social penetration theory. So I want to give you five quick steps, five principles of self-disclosure. And this comes from BBBB and Redmond's research here. The first is that it usually moves in small steps. Now, I think we've all had that circumstance where we've met someone that we knew right from the beginning we were going to be great friends with. We had a lot in common, maybe. And so maybe we got to the center of the onion a little bit more quickly than we would have with someone else. That's fine. But the vast majority of people, when we meet them, self-disclosure is going to work in small steps. Again, tell them a little bit about ourselves. We'll tell that person uh, maybe where we're from, our music tastes, etc., and we're going to wait to get to the center of the onion 
a little bit later on, until a little bit later on, and we're going to wait to ask some of those pressing questions until a little bit further on in the process. Part of this is to keep us from wasting time, so we can evaluate, again, how much value this person will be, or this friendship, this relationship will be to us. If we ask them a bunch of questions, we have nothing in common, they can't really help us out in an organizational or work context, can't really help us out in a friend's context, um, there's you know no spoken chemistry there or anything like that. It's wise to move in small steps so that this random person off of the street that you met that you don't really want to be friends with doesn't know every last thing about you. Uh, likewise, as with number one, number two, the second step says that basically self-disclosure moves from impersonal to intimate information. Just like we talked about with the onion theory or social penetration theory. We start on the outside and then slowly work our way to the inside. As we talked about before also, step number three is that it's usually reciprocal. So there's gotta be some level of give and take. This may not always be the case. I'm sure we all have that friend, that coworker, whatever, that like I said, overshares and will self-disclose without us self-disclosing back. But typically most of our intimate relationships uh, and again, when I say intimate, I mean intimate relationships as far as communication are, is concerned. So it could be a work friend, it could be a real friend, it could be a romantic relationship, whatever that might be. Usually that reciprocity has to exist in order for there to be intimate communication. Numbers four and five are tied in with one another. Number four says it involves risk. And number five says self-disclosure involves trust. So there's some level of risk of putting yourself out there. That's what makes self-disclosure kind of awkward in certain circumstances, especially if you say something like maybe a controversial opinion that you have. That's putting yourself out there and you have to trust at a certain point that that person, even if they disagree with you, won't use that information against you. And then there's that trust too, right? If we tell someone that maybe we wouldn't tell everyone or we wouldn't tell other people, we trust them to kind of keep that information to themselves and not use that information to harm us. And so we see this a lot, certainly, as people are just starting to meet as friends or uh, in any other workplace relationship. If there's not that trust there, then you're not going to usually self-disclose beyond just the surface level things. If there is a trust developed there, then you might self-disclose things to a certain colleague or coworker that you might not to others. So that's what we're looking for as far as the self-disclosure steps. Once again, basically starts off small, gets big, we get to the center of the onion, it's reciprocal, and involves some risk on our part to self-disclose, and it involves trusting that other person enough to make sure that they won't harm us with the information or they don't won't do something with that information about us that we wouldn't otherwise approve of. That brings to a close our supplemental lecture for this week. Once again, a quick reminder, next seven days, Sunday, February 11th, reflection paper number one is due via D2L submission at 11.59 p.m. Do not save in a .pages format when you turn that in. Make sure it's a document format, like a Word document or a PDF even is fine, or Google Sheets, anything like that. .pages is an Apple format that D2L kind of chews up and spits out. Topic check number three is also due via D2L at 11.59 p.m. And once again, the answer to that one question on the topic check, you'll know which one it is, is Cat Stevens. That's the answer to it. Next week, we'll talk about intercultural and international organizational communication. And quiz number two will take place in class when we meet on February 13th. 
All right, that's all I've got for you. Thanks for checking out this supplemental lecture. And we'll be back with you next week with more organizational communication information.